Welcome to another episode of Most Important Podcast with me, Sunil Singhvi. Now, every week on the show, we have another wonderful person come in and give us their time. And we use that time to really unpack a little bit more about who they are. And we do that by seeing what they value, by hearing from them what they think is their most important mistake. What's their most important decision? What do they regard as their most important place? And when they think about memories, what's the most important one that comes to the forefront? The shows vary really heavily. Some are very upbeat and some are really deep and meaningful. So I'd encourage you to have a listen to the show, but also to delve into the back catalogue and hear some of the incredible people that have already been on the show. Have a listen. Let me know what you think in the uh, reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, make sure to subscribe so you get this podcast every week. On this week's show, we have a singer who I think is truly, truly remarkable. An honest voice in dishonest times, if we're going to be really honest. Um, Joseph has the ability to write songs that resonate even when you didn't know that you needed that. They take you to a place, they take you to an experience, they take you to a level of understanding. Uh, and I think the songwriting on the new album is just absolutely phenomenal. So I'm super excited to have you hear this. This is Most Important Podcast with me, Sunil Singhvi, and Joseph Salvat. The honesty in your music and the honesty in all the interviews I've read with you yeah. just comes through. Oh, awesome. uh, And I'm super excited about doing this because I think it's, um, it's a great time for you, right? Because yeah. you've been waiting for this moment for quite a while, right? Yeah, four to years. To get to the four album. Four years, four years. Four years. Well, four years since the last release. Um, four years since Night Swim came out. And then, and then I just sort of bummed about for a while writing yeah <laughs> inverted commas um and um finally finally got it together yeah so in that four years of writing yeah how much of it is from four years ago and how much of it is from <laughs> how much four of the days album ago? is how yeah. much of the album is yeah that's it's always a fact i've tried to do there were i wrote a lot of songs in that time and there's only 10 songs on the album. So I did try and do a pretty good spread. But the earliest song is actually from 2015, the end of 2015, right, which is right. more than four years ago. So, um, which is Human. And then the most recent song, I think, on there is... Not Morning, not Peppermint. Oh, it's, um, it's, a, it's the last track of the album called Enough. And I wrote that in July in Paris last year. Yeah. yeah. I um, I once had the most unbelievable opportunity, which was to to listen to John Legend talking mm. about um, his first album wow. before it was released. Wow. And he played us like three or four songs from the album and they were all really good. There was like number one and there was like lots of records on there that you thought, wow, these are really great. And then he said, oh, we've, I've, written a, I've written another one this week um, and we're not sure if it's going to be on the album, but I really like it. It's huge. We've and then he played it. Ordinary People. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, was okay. like, I was like, that process must be so hard to always know that we could keep writing forever. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you can. And I think that I've come to terms with that now. And it's um, a massive, um, it's liberating to realize that. That, uh, like, I'm not going for my best song. I'm going for a continuum throughout yes. my life. Like a practice, you know, it's practice writing. Um, the funny thing about that, like writing your best song once you've like done the album and you're not sure of it. Once, I, I, d I definitely found this with Nights when I found this with this one. Once the body of work, so to speak, is tied up. You kind of chill out. You're not you're not writing for the album anymore. You don't need to find the album anymore. So you just and when you don't want something, it comes a lot easier. Generally, I find no. And when you, 
I've, I've always been sort of fascinated when you think of like the biggest songs ever written. Yeah. Do people know at the time? Like when David Bowie writes Life on Mars, mm. does everyone in the studio know okay. this is it? It's a great um, throwback there. Love that song. Um, I don't think so. Sometimes, for sure. But I don't, I don't think there's a rule there. Yeah. Um, I definitely know like knew my biggest song on the first album was a song called Open Season. And I knew that that was the single when I wrote it instantly. And I had... I thought it was going to do pretty well. Um, but um, I'm not sure, I, you know, what, what you just made me think of is whether Paul Epworth and Adele knew that Rolling in the Deep was going to be Rolling in the Deep when they wrote it. I think I, I read an interview with Adele where she, she knew when she wrote um, Someone Like You that it was going to be a career-defining moment. Sometimes you, sometimes you know. Yeah. But then I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately of just like, you know, just random, you know, things that just go and touch people. Like, you know, do a lip and new rules. I don't think they knew that was going to be yeah. what it was. Um, very, very pop major label references. I'm <laughs> out here, but no, I think, I don't think that there's a rule there. Sometimes you might feel it. So in all the shows, we give a little caveat, mm. which is that I, um, I think I'm asking you really difficult questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm asking you about the most important thing, but I want you to think about this like you've thought about the album, where actually this is not the defining set of answers gotcha. you'll ever give. Gotcha. At yeah. some point in your life... <laughs> Pressure we'll, off. Yeah, we'll, we, we'll do this again yeah. after you've won your, your fifth Grammy <laughs> and, and oh, you can have completely different answers. <laughs> okay, good. And that's okay. Yeah. So I would like to start with um, your most important place. So I think that would probably, I'm, I'm Australian. I'm from, I was born and raised in Sydney. Um, my parents live in the country, which is very beautiful. And I was thinking maybe that would be my most important place, but it's not. Most important place, every time I go back to Australia, I arrive and I go straight to a beach called Camp Cove, which is, it's on, the, it's on South Head, so where the, where the Pacific enters into Port Jackson, which is the harbour there. And um, it's just a little beach. It's a harbour beach, which is not very, it's not, Harbour beaches are like slightly lower grade, but it's right next to the head. So you, it's still very fresh. And um, I've been doing that for 10 years that I've been overseas. Every time I go home, whether it's winter, whether it's summer, morning, night, whatever, we'll go to Camp Cove and swim and like just yeah, bathe in the Pacific. Uh, it's a type of physical therapy for sure. And just like cleans the mind. And, um, and, the, and as a result of that, it's, it's like the, the ritualistic element to it over the last 10 years. Um, there are so many memories associated with it and with my family and with returning home and stuff. So it's very, and it's, you know, I've been going there since I was a tiny infant. So. And do you still view Australia as home? Yeah, absolutely. I've never, I, like living outside of Australia, I never felt more Australian. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you realize how different you are um, culturally to, you know, from Australia, like England, the motherland, all that sort of stuff. You think it's the same, but it's really not. And we have different sense of humor. We have a different communication style and all that sort of stuff. But I have been here for long enough now that this is also home. Um, and um, I'm quite comfortable with that now. That was a little bit, there was a tension there for a few years. Mm. Um, but I've sort of settled into it. And I've got the best of both worlds. You know? And do you, have you built uh, an Australian community for yourself here? or Not really, actually. I mean, I have some Australian friends, for mm. sure. But my friends are mainly British over here. Um, Australians tend to, to like they come for a couple of years and then they go back mm. and so you know any any most of the people that I knew when I first arrived here have, have left mm. um, it's very like it's a turbulent sort of thing whereas the 
Brits, you guys, you stay because yeah. you're here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, and how does that affect your accent? When you go home, do you, does your accent come on or does it stay the same now? Do you think, do you think I've got it? You can definitely hear it. Yeah. You can definitely hear it. People, like, people say I've got a really, really mild accent. Now that you've said it, I'm can see feel myself consciously trying to speak more Australian. Um, yeah, my accent does get stronger when I go when I go home. But um, I don't think it's changed. I don't think my accent's changed so much as, as as opposed to the intonation. Yeah, the way the way I phrase a sentence, like the actual melody of speech, that that changes because yeah. it's so different over here. Yeah, you know, in Australia, everything's a question. Like, how you going? Like, I went to the beach. Um, we're doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very different. I'm a, I'm because my my wife is Scottish, mm. um, and one of the sadnesses of my life is that I can't do a Scottish accent, oh. and it, it breaks my it's heart. It's really hard. It really, I think it is. And she's, she's. Are you good at accents? No, I'm, no. Dr- I'm dreadful. Okay. But she's, um, she's sort of Glasgow way right. accent wise, not Edinburgh, so it makes it even harder. Like yeah. Edinburgh, you can probably have a go at Glasgow. What's the difference? What's uh, Edinburgh's? Um, it's got a, Edinburgh sounds slightly more English, right? That's controversial, by so the way. Less I'm gonna of get a stretch for your mouth. Yeah, I'm going to get that complaints. is that is quite controversial. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be real mad about that. But that's like the the Glasgow accent, and, and and one of our good friends from there has a really thick accent from here. And and I just desperately want my kids to ha- at to least be able to accent. do the accent. Yeah, they don't necessarily have to have it, but be able to do it because I think it's such a connection. Does your wife have? Is it quite strong? Her I accent? can't hear it at all. You but everyone it. else thinks she has an accent. That's so interesting. I've never noticed it, but everyone else is convinced that she's got quite a strong accent. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on from there to talk about what's your most important possession. Now, I have asked people to pick a physical possession yeah. because we've had a few people pick their their own brain, um, oh and we've also had lots of people pick their phones and laptops. Yeah. All of that stuff can be backed up, so people. Sad. <laughs> you can back all that up. Don't give me that. Uh, your most important possession, Joseph. Um, the first thing pops into my mind but then i get really uncomfortable it's big, i don't think he's a possession it's my dog and he's, he's not possession so he's his own little entity um so scratch that and then let's say i think i think my my home my house the um yeah here in london i've got i i bought a house two years ago and um oh flat and um everything sorted out growing up we like we moved a lot when i was right a kid around sydney so we we moved like like 19, 20 times by the time I was 18. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it would be somewhere for like, like there were a few years where we would move three times in the year and then we stayed other places a couple of, a couple of years. But so that was pretty chaotic. So you were never anywhere more than sort of two or three years? No, no. We had the farm, which is where mum and dad live now, which was yeah. like a, like a constant. Yeah. Um, and we'd spend, I'd spend summers there and stuff like that and weekends and whatever. But, um, no, yeah, we moved a lot. And then obviously going to uni, student share flats yeah, yeah, and bouncing around there and then moving. Well, I moved to Spain before I moved here. Yes. Cause my dad is from there and I was, uh, I had friends here and they were like, everyone was broke and it was so grim. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'll be, I want to be broke by the beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and you were in Barcelona, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in Barcelona yeah. for, um, for a year and a half. And that, and I lived in like three flats there and then moved here and then just the yeah the, the flat sharing thing exorbitant rents yeah. like no rental security just like Ooh. bouncing around so when i got my house i was like land like no i don't have to deal with anybody else's black mole problem i don't have to deal with like <laughs> weird stuff in the shower um and i can sort of curate my space yeah and i can settle um and they, like going back to where the england feels like home 
but now it does because of that. Yeah. I think that's my most definitely, without a doubt, my most important position. So this is the first time you've had sort of real roots. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were thinking about your, when you were dreaming about this place you were going to buy, yeah. what was the thing you were thinking of? What was the thing you were like? I can't wait to have dot 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 in my house. It wasn't actually like a thing to have in my my house. It was like a state. Like I and it's, <laughs> I just wanted to be able to like. I want to be able to wander around naked in my house, <laughs> in all the rooms, and sit on the couch and do everything naked and not like worry or about anybody walking in, anybody's complaints. It's my space. I can do whatever I want. Not that I'm a particular nudist, but like, just, there's a perversity to it that really appealed to me. So yeah, that I, was I, important. I can completely <laughs> understand that. I think for me, when when I was buying my first house, yeah. the thing I wanted was Sunday mornings. Right. I just wanted I that I joy that. Yes. of I can do whatever I want yeah. on this Sunday morning yeah. in this place. And like I dreamed of like shutters with the light filtering with the light through. filtering yeah. through. I mean that sheets. didn't quite happen, no, but <laughs> <laughs> but that notion of just being like, no, this is this is almost like a spiritual haven right yeah. now, and the yeah. only person that can be in it is me. Yeah, um, I definitely, I definitely felt that as well. That that, that Sunday morning with the light thing. Gentle breeze. Uh, if I ever come to your house, I'm not sitting on your couch. Now, if I know you've been <laughs> on it naked. Clean. It's very clean. <laughs> um, I wet wipe everything down. <laughs> um, the other one that we always give a caveat to um, is most important person. And yeah, I've asked people horrible. to take out family members <laughs> yeah. uh, because I think that's going to cause eruptions. Like mm. you can't say like your, your dad and then, you know, other members of the family hear it. So uh, the most important person to you? I mean, right now, I've just started seeing someone. So... And it's, it's it's going very well. It's really intense. Probably him, but um, I don't have one. I genuinely don't have a most important person. I don't. The hierarchy of that is like, with I I'm I'm an only child, mm. so I I don't have a lot of friends, but the ones that I do have are basically family members. Like, and there's nothing I would tell one that I wouldn't tell the other. They everybody is on a very very equal footing, and it's it's been difficult with almost all of them hmm. to understand that, 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 that it's a, it's a full complete love and it, and, and it, I, it, there are multiple people that experience that love, but it doesn't lessen that, you know, but I just don't, I just don't have that. That's like this extended family, really important for me to create that, particularly coming over here. Yeah. Um, I don't have like a best friend or, yeah. um, you know, like a key mentor in my life. I've had a few, I, yeah, I don't, this um this little pyramid of people I don't yeah. have. It's more of like a round table. So uh, I'm going to let you dodge the question. Um, <laughs> but but tell me what do you what do you think is important in a person when you look at the people that have stayed constants in your life, the people that have been friends through, you know, all the changes that you've had in terms of locations and aspirations and all those things. What are the things that you look for in a person? Um, there's got to be some sort of shared understanding about what you're going for in the future. Uh, or, or, or even in the present moment, actually, yeah. just like what you want to get out of life. I think that's really important. And that's not, you, you can't explain that. You can't talk about that. You just have to feel that in another person. Um, and I also think people just like, people that are sort of secure in themselves and can sense the truth of an of an emotion can sense truth behind I can be like I can get into moves where I become very provocative or or like very devil's advocate and just debate stuff that I don't even believe in for the sake of it this can be and it can be very very annoying so for somebody to see behind that <laughs> see past that 
um, and see that I love them. <laughs> and I actually probably completely agree with what they're saying. And I'm just on a, on a, on a, like some air. Um, that's really important. Um, so people, so people that can sort of sense the truth, the emotional truth of a situation is also really important. I think those are the two things I look at and, and good people. I think all my friends are very at their core. Not that I necessarily believe in good or, good or bad, mm. but, um, you know, some people are more Machiavellian than, than others. Some people, it's just like, um, I'm probably the most Machiavellian of any of my friends. That's the way I like it. <laughs> that's, but uh, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I don't, absolutely. I don't think you should ever be the, the least The least Machiavellian. Machiavellian. No, no, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you about what's your most important piece of advice. I think that you just, you, uh, you can't please everyone. That was, and and I, I got that advice in 2013. No, yeah. 2000, to the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. Um, when I was putting together the track listing for my first album, um, and it's taken me since then to really be able to put that into practice, um, because in order to not try and please everybody, you have to sort of give zero fucks, you know, um, and that's a really hard thing to do. You can only do what you do. People are going to like it. If they don't like it, that's, that's, that's not your problem, you know, and the ones that do like it will like it for the right reasons and so you just but this it's not yeah like if you try and live life as a popularity contest you 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 i think bound for failure or like a serious reckoning of mm. you know cuz cuz then your ho- whole self-worth and your is 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 dependent and contingent on what other people are thinking yeah if that's if that's what you're trying to do please everybody and also you compromise massively and you spread yourself too thin and you just yeah you've you've described that very much in a work context mm. but of course that piece of advice is really applicable in everyday life yeah like i have described it in a work, work context but i think what like what i do writing songs and all this sort of stuff and it's like i write from a relatively autobiographical place mm. that totally flows into into my personal life and it actually it's a it's a it's a question about like um like yeah self-love which i think is an aspiration mm. not like a state that you arrive to but like mm. you just but so and, and then and then just yeah what's your value what's your worth for yourself um, I, w- I want to touch on that bit about writing autobiographically. Yeah. Um, I listened to Sam Smith talking about their first album mm. and how autobiographical that was mm. and how difficult that then becomes for mm. the second album when you don't have brand new experiences. Mm. Is there any part of you and the sort of management team or the people that look after you that said you know what we should do you should just go on like a wild bender for seven months just so we can write new stories that's literally what i did (laughs) i got to the end of 2016 and i um i had absolutely nothing to write about um my life had been super fun but actually the moment i started to sit down and try and write music it was god this is boring like it's really boring stuff so i decided to move to berlin and um intentionally just mess up my life for a year like, you know, like a little controlled experiment, yeah. controlled chaos. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And it was great. And um, kind of cosmic. And it gave me all these horrible experiences. I, I got beaten up on New Year's Eve. Oh. Um, c- totally randomly in the street just by like just some dude on the corner who clearly taking the wrong drugs or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what was wrong with him. And I was just walking to a party with my friends. Um, and yeah, I got, I've never been beaten up before. It was f- like full on. Like I just said, happy new year to him and he, and he ushered me over and then just started <laughs> kicking the shit out of me. Um, that was amazing. That was so good. 
<laughs> in the long term. Yeah. Um, I had been on this high in Berlin for sort of three or four months that I'd been there. And, um, and then, and then that happened. And what was worse, it wasn't the punches or the, it wasn't the physical pain. Mm. It was just the transference of all this negative energy, which really shocked me because I had never experienced anything like that before. Transferring of energy in yeah. such a pop, like it was, it's, it was all a bit sort of hoodoo guru, that stuff for me. But I really felt this like whoop, into my chest of just hate or anger yeah, yeah. that he was obviously carrying around this really dark stuff. Yeah. And, um, and then I was carrying it around for the next four months and I've, you know, I've been so on what's cloud cloud nine yeah for for such a long time and then all of a sudden i mean i was just i was having all these microaggressions every left right and center with people that somebody beeped at me on a pedestrian crossing and i just stopped and like hit their bonnet you know stuff like that yeah. crazy angry person stuff yeah um for yeah it was sort of leaking out of me for about four five six months but and then and then you know i started drinking really heavily and all this and it was, i mean it's exactly what i wanted I needed to explore these spaces yeah. that I hadn't been able to access. And there was obviously, um, it was dredging up all the stuff that I had just sort of been suppressing for mm. the previous years. Um, because I was, you know, on tour and promo mood, like, yeah, yeah. you know, being, you know, album. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was sort of, it was, a, it was very cathartic. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, it felt like a bit of a, Berlin was a bit of a Petri dish to sort of explore all this darker stuff that was in there without much consequence, really. Right. Um, and then I left at the end of 2017, moved back to London and everything was dandy again. <laughs> so you're going to release the album, uh, have a whole bunch of praise and streams and go on a, a world tour and then find yourself in Manila in some sort of <laughs> <laughs> drinking hole. I'm not sure I'm going to do this again. <laughs> I think that was very much a, a point. I was also reaching like, you know, I was 27, tw I was 28 and I, it was, um, it was bringing up all this. I don't think I need to do that again. Right, right, right. Um, it was also about this thing of like getting the last bits of my youth out yeah, as well, yeah. um, which I hadn't really done for the previous four years. Yeah. So, no, after this, I'm just going to go away to some nice little cottage somewhere and sit on my own and write beautiful things, <laughs> drink tea. I mean, perfect. Um, what do you consider to be your most important decision? Uh, coming to London to to do um I, I went to i studied law at university um and i came to london one christmas so our summer and came here for six weeks with like this janky little demo cd i had really like self-produced badly self-produced thing um and it was in this little brown paper bag and i put um crumpled up passport photos of my face and it was just it was it was cute um and I was looking around for a manager. And at the time, Florence and the Machine, I was just obsessed with Florence and the Machine. Mm. And her manager was Mairead Nash. Yes. And then, and I knew that Mairead Nash was friends with Sadie Frost. And I knew that Sadie Frost lived in Primrose Hill. So I found my, I was just like, so I found myself wandering around Primrose Hill looking for paparazzi <laughs> 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 to try and figure out which house to put my demo CD into. I mean, it was crazy. Um, I mean, I was, any, anybody I met, anywhere, I was just giving them out the CD. I had this little leather pouch that I just had all these demo CDs in it. Um, and, um, and then after that six weeks, I went to Geneva as for this university course, which was um, going to a whole bunch of UN organizations with, with other kids from my university. And out of that, I got, I heard nothing from my six weeks in London. I was like, mm. wow, this? 
Like I gave my best shot. Like yeah. <laughs> I was definitely not going to send in unsolicited demos to record labels or anything like yeah. that. I thought that was like I'd never see the light of day. I was trying to be more creative, but didn't I? I thought it didn't work. Um, but I did get a like an entry level, you know, um, paper pushing position starting in six months' time in Canberra, which is where I studied yeah. at the Australian chapter for the High Commissioner for Refugees, which is incredible opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> so I was like, this is not what I want to do with my life at all. Why am I doing this? Um, and then three weeks after I had arrived back in Australia, it was lying in bed in this depression. I was getting up at like 1 p.m. every day. I was like, this is terrible. My, my life's failed. And my dad had been reading my emails. He somehow got hacked into my email <laughs> okay, account. That doesn't sound great. No, no. He's so nosy, my dad. And he's like, Joseph, Joseph. Guys, what's this? Who's 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 this woman? And basically, my manager, who be, the, the woman that became my manager at the time, um, had sent, had found my demo to a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, and she was working for an independent record label over here. And she sent me a one-liner email, being like, "Hi, I got your demo CD. It's really cool. Like, what what are you about?" And um, I just sent back the nerdiest sort of essay. <laughs> <laughs> what are you about? Yeah, what it was are you about? So hard. Yeah, it was so music industry. Actually, <laughs> what are you about? And I was like, here's. 14 pages about it. Um, <laughs> and then I, and then I was like, hasta la vista that job and just flew straight over to, to the UK. Um, and it all, and started it all. That was the best decision I ever made. Wow. Well, so the decision was actually the little leather pouch with the brown CD. I guess the decision was the little <laughs> leather pouch with the brown CDs. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It's mm-hmm. gr- it's great to hear that works because I, uh, we, we record the, the podcast at, at Sony Music's office. I imagine there are a ton of unsolicited emails yeah. now. They would have been CDs years yeah. ago and, you know, before that tapes maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or people just turning up in reception and playing so it's good to hear that you know there is a there's a route to these things being found um what do you think is your most important memory um i have i mean i i'm not going to dodge this question <laughs> but i really do feel like i'm my, i'm a, we're tapestries of thousands of memories mm. and i'm not and i'm and, and quite a few of them are incredibly important but I think the, um, I think, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's related to my music and what I do, which is so essential to my whole experience of being alive. But, um, it's the first, so it's personal as well. Um, um, it, I did a festival in Holland in 2013. It's like, I think it was like my second or third festival. Earlier that year, I had my first gig in London, which was terrible. Like shocking. Um, Why was it shocking? Oh, I had no idea what I was doing. My band was awful. <laughs> I like, pressed the wrong button on the machine and started the next song in the wrong um, tempo. <laughs> but it was just it was just it was a bit of a train wreck. Great, it was a great learning experience. Not the best, not the most important mistake, but a good learning yeah. experience. Um, so I was I was apprehensive about about my um, live show, um, and we got to this. So the festival was on an island in Holland called Vlieland. Mm-hmm. Um, really beautiful island, yeah. kind of tricky to get to. Well, you catch you, you 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 have to drive and then catch a boat, and then then you're, there are only cycles like bicycles on the island. Oh uh, right! And um, it's a festival called Into the Great Wide Open, and I was booked to play that night at like whatever that night in this little unbelievably beautiful Lord of the Rings kind of little valley of pine trees. Wow! Wasn't allowed to smoke in it because of all the pine yeah. needles that just like go off. It was 
on a very human scale, but this little, this little Dell or whatever. Um, and I got there and the girl before me was this like very ethereal. She had like somebody with electric violin, like sort of atmospheric beats. And she was like ethereally mm. wailing. And so I was like, really beautiful. But I was like, oh, this is not my <laughs> music. I'm about to play like half an hour of four to the floor pop songs. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> sitting calmly in the valley cross-legged with their children. And it's very calm. I was like, oh no, this is going to be a disaster. And Brendan, my bassist at the time, who actually is now, then moved on to Sam Smith. Um, um, he So he was my, he would play bass and and control the backing tracks. And mm. then I would just stand there and sing in my, in my blue suit. Um, I was terrified and, and I couldn't smoke. And it was just, um, I got myself into such state. Anyway, got on stage. Everybody's sitting down, all these Dutch people, super calm. And I started playing the song Constant Runners, which has a four to the floor beat kick in after about 15 seconds. And at that 15 second mark, the entire valley stood up and like hands in the air, screaming, ecstatic euphoria. I haven't, it, it was unbelievable. Um, and, um, and it sustained that for the rest of the show. Just couldn't get enough. And then, and then I, I had no encore. I had to do an encore and you don't do encore. I just didn't know. So I played, I had, I sang Hustler again. Um, and then that night they have these bonfires down on the beach where all the festival goers go. And I went down there and then I sang Hustler at the bonfire. I just like, act like oh. on my own. It was incredible. It was incredible. And it gave me, it gave me faith that carried me through the next three, four years. Just like it was that moment where you just go oh no you you've got like you've got this and and people will enjoy this just just be pure have faith love them give you a shot yeah thanks for sharing that that's a wonderful story Uh um it's going to be a bit of a mood shift now (laughs) joseph what do you think your most important mistake's been um i don't i've never made any mistakes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> got no regret. No. Oh no, that's a different thing. Regrets yeah. is a different thing. That's true, actually. Um, regrets is very. I have so many regrets. <laughs> it's a total lie. Um, mistake. Probably going to university. Huh. Yeah. Um, because it's a total waste of time, and it was for me. I think it was a very fear-based decision. Mm. Um, I just was terrified of go- going and making music. I thought I was. I had no idea how the real world world worked. I thought I was going to get trampled over. I didn't. So I went to university and studied this really dry thing that I thought was going to be really helpful in my life mm. and has been anything but. It's like law, law if anything, you, you don't remember any law, but it does change the way you think. You think in this incredibly methodical, rational, which is very anti-human mm. rationality. I think it's a completely overblown concept. But um, what are the facts? How does this fit? Like everything, and, and, and the detail and I still suffer from it now. It's like no story is complete unless I have given you everything because otherwise you have no understanding. And that's like anti-artistry and it's anti-creativity. Um, and it changed the way my brain worked. Um, and I, I've spent the rest of like since university trying to get back to how I felt before I went to university mm. of this sort of madness and following the flow and the beauty of that. Um, when I write music, everything, when I write lyrics, how concepts fit together but it it's it was the most important the people i met at university are the most important people in my life mm. there have been other people added to that most important people category yeah. these people are incredible and they're still part 
of my life in a very, very deep way. Like one of the Meg, she she didn't go on to do law either. She became a TV producer and she directed the Modern Anxiety video. <sighs> and it was based on a concept that she had um, developed for ABC in Australia, which is this um, show called Content. Yeah. Um, and it's all shot on the phone. It's a, Sorry, it's all, you watch it on your iPhone. And yes. It's short form. It's, go and check it out, actually. It's on YouTube and it's brilliant. Yeah. And I completely jacked it for the Modern Anxiety video. Um, she's brilliant. She's just, I mean, these people inspire me all the time. Yeah. Um, in so many different ways, creatively, like in like life path, whatever. Um, and um, also just are there to call me my bullshit, you know, like just to keep you like it's cliche, but keep you grounded and stuff like yeah. that. Will fight me. So that's best mistake because I, I, I wouldn't have met them otherwise. Yeah, that's great. I think the, the notion that you'd spent tens of thousands of dollars on an education and now spend the rest of your life trying to unwire it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> trying to pick it apart. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Um, it's been really good. Um, there is one last piece yeah. that I haven't warned you about. Oh dear. Um, and I, I haven't <laughs> warned you about because I want your initial reaction. Now, okay. I, Jason, I'm going to take you back to the beginning where I said to you that this will never be held up in a court of law. <laughs> you will never be defined by the decisions and mistakes and answers you're about to give me now. Okay. Um, most important book. Well, oh, like three popped into my brain. Um, Harry Potter was one of them, and it's definitely not the most important <laughs> book, but it is one of my most. I mean, loved I would have books. given you Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> yeah. That's, that that would have been an appropriate answer. I would have given you that. Okay, it was that was that was. I'm not sure if that was my favorite. I think the Goblet of Fire was my oh, favorite, fair. but Prisoner of Azkaban was brilliant. Um, I think the book, bu- a book I'm reading now, right now, and it's and it's a huge book. Um, and I think everybody should read it. It's called The Overstory. On the Pulitzer, it's about trees. And um, I love nature. I love trees. I mean, that's what I miss most about Australia mm. is the nature and the sky and the horizons and the birds. and the, But mainly, like, just the bush. Like, it's so powerful and mm. primal. And um, and it, it it's, like, peaceful. It puts my head into a really peaceful place. It's great. It's great to write music or have thoughts or or not, you know. Um, and then obviously we just had the bushfires, <laughs> obviously like, like the, um, Amazon burning last year, people not caring. I don't know. Tree and, and, and I, I'm a bit sort of, I've got this idea that we're all sort of connected, like mm. in a way we don't understand, like kind of in an avatar way. Have you seen yeah, avatar? Yeah. You know how they're praying to the yep. tree and everybody's just like, cause this, I don't know. So this, so this, sto- this, this book overstory, um, by, I think his name's Richard Powers. Um, it's, um, it's basically that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's weaving together the stories of, uh, I think it's eight different characters, completely unrelated, who all get pulled together to basically save, save the future of trees and therefore humanity. And, um, it sounds really boring, a book about trees, yeah. but it is gripping compared, like it is so beautifully written. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's an incredibly, incredibly important thing to be thinking about. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, most important film? Um, oh, cliche answer here. Um, the first thing that pops into my mind is American Beauty. It's everybody's bloody favourite film. But it just came at a time when I was starting to get that like teenage sort of nihilistic art mm. thing going on. <laughs> sort of like, um, and it was dark. Yeah. And the soundtrack, 
the yes. soundtrack, Thomas Newman's soundtrack. Is this Thomas Newman? Yeah, that's his name, right? But anyways, the soundtrack was like very, 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 very defining for me and very defining for how I wrote and all that sort of stuff. And the, and the, yeah, that's probably, yeah, it's cliche, but it's, it's pretty true. And here's the last one. Mm -hmm. And you can probably feel where this is going. Most important song. Um, um, uh, no me quitte pas, which is the song by Jacques Brel. Okay. Um, but I first heard it sung by Nina Simone, um, in like her terrible French accent. It was, I had this compilation <laughs> CD of Nina Simone, and God, it, I was just like eight, and I, I still remember it. Like I still remember it. I was standing in the kitchen in my parents' house. And I was blown away. It's so sad. It's so beautiful. Um, and then, and that's what started my love. Like I love like the like French chanson stuff. And I, that's how I, I discovered Jacques Brel that way. And I think it's incredible. Serge Gainsbourg, all these all these sort of things, and um, really helped with the whole. Yeah, the way I write music and and what I think is important lyrically. Um, and then I ended up singing it on Tara Tatar, which is like kind of like a French version of Jules Holland. Um, as a cover, which was mental, because like I mean, I went on French Exchange when I was in in, in high school. I remember Tara Tata was a huge deal. Yeah. Like, is quite mad that I ended up there. But and then I so and I sung that song, and there was like they were like, you have to cover a French song. I was like, it's absolutely, absolutely only one option. Yeah. Um, and it works with my voice. I've sung it actually. Yeah, I've sung that song many times in various different. But that was the pinnacle of it. And it's sort of followed my life the whole way through and been really influential. Let me keep going. I do, I do love that about France, that they are, they're legally obliged yeah. to have you do French covers and to have French language on the radio yeah. to never be dominated by someone else. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. Although they've got round it because it's all now just covers in yeah. French. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually like homegrown talent. Yeah. It's just like... There is, I mean, I feel like there's been a resurgence of that for sure. Um of homegrown talent, but I think definitely yeah, they were just a lot of Anglo artists doing like sticking some French. I mean, I did it, <laughs> like, um, but um, yeah, no, it's yeah, it's like radio quotas, fifty-five percent, mm. I think they need French. Or no, it's more than that. It's like sixty percent French language yeah. on the radio, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, go find the album, have a listen. Um, it's a wonderful piece of work. Thanks a lot for listening to today's episode and thanks a lot to this week's guest. Now, if you want next week's episode on time so you have it before anyone else, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Make sure you're following along with the podcast to get new episodes as they emerge into the world.